Transitioning children from one gender to another is the subject of tremendous conflict as well it should be. Well, today I'm going to finish my conversation with experts Irene Erickson from the Institute for Research and Evaluation and Mary Ann Mozak from the organization Ascend, which works to improve sexual health. We'll continue talking about the medical aspects of transitioning children, and this is information every parent or teacher or concerned adult needs to hear. You know, we all hear the moral and religious and political arguments on both sides of transitioning children, but we don't hear the medical arguments. And so this is what we're going to talk about today with my two guests, Irene and Marianne. All right, so let's dive into my conversation. I'm here with my guests, Irene Erickson and Marianne Mozak. Thank you so much for coming and doing part two of our podcast on transgender kids. It's great to be here again. Thanks for having us. Irene, there are a lot of comorbidities with gender dysphoria and gender confusion. And I don't know that a lot of people in the general public know about it. So could you address those things, the issues that go along with kids who are struggling with gender confusion? Sure. It's, it's just that it's common for a young person that has this problem of gender confusion or gender dysphoria to also have other psychological mental health problems. Like um, it's actually high, it correlated with autism. And so that would be one example. It's correlated with depression and anxiety. And the assumption is often made that the gender dysphoria causes the depression and anxiety, but that's not really known. You know, it's as equally plausible that the, the depression and anxiety is feeding into the gender dysphoria as kind of being seen as a, as a fix, you know, that's going to make me feel better um, as the child, because this is such a a common now um, phenomenon. And so I think OCD is one as well. And so there are other issues that very often come hand in hand with this problem. But if you don't treat those and you just assume that doing this medical gender transition is going to solve all these problems, it's not a, a well-supported assumption. There's not, there's not evidence for that. And so it would just be a caution to to parents that, I mean, this is what happened in, in the United Kingdom where they had this clinic that was rushing all these kids to transition medically without treating any of these underlying comorbidities of psychological or emotional or psychiatric problems. And when they were reviewed about that, and the doctors said, we felt pressure to move forward when we hadn't really analyzed or assessed what was really going on with this child. And so that's why they shut the clinic down, was that they said, we need to step back and look at what we're doing and deal with these kids in a holistic fashion and treat the whole person um, and all of their problems. I love that. Treat the whole person. Don't just sort of put a Band-Aid on it. So Marianne, we were talking earlier about depression in girls, and you were making the point that you know, depression can come from many different sources, particularly in pubertal girls. They've got a lot of hormones. They, they feel that they can be re rejected by anybody by just a look or, you know, a movement. And you're absolutely right. And when I think about that, because I see a lot of depression kick in in girls right around puberty. 
and I ask parents, okay, when mm -hmm. did she start behaving like this? So if you have that going on, and then when you think back in a child's life to say, you know, first through third grade, those are times when kids are sort of experimenting with, gee, what would it be like to be a boy? I know our daughter went through a very intense tomboy period where she actually would only have her hair cut by a barber. She wanted fighter planes and on a border all over her room. You know, if she'd done something good, we took her to the Army Navy store to, you know, to um, award her. And now she is, of all of our kids, I mean, she is the most fashion forward, lovely feminine girl of them all. <laughs> so if, if you put those two things together, so in middle school, early middle school, you've got kids who are sort of thinking about what it would be like to be a boy or thinking about what it'd be like to be a girl. And they go through that. And then you hit puberty a few years later and girls are experiencing some depression and awkwardness about who you are. It seems to me that, you know, it's not that unusual that kids who are not gender dysphoric would have these ideas that, gee whiz, maybe being the other sex would be kind of a bit better. But they're not gender dysphoric, but maybe they're being read as gender dysphoric right now. Would you agree or disagree with that, Marianne? I would uh, totally agree with that because really, if they're experiencing pain, okay, let's call that, you know, that awkwardness, that chaos, that uh, self-awareness, um, let's call it a form of pain. Um, most people want to get out of pain right? So mm -hmm. if I have developing breasts and I'm now in there, you know, I'm way ahead of everyone else and I become kind of a curiosity to not only, uh, you know, the girls, but boys, I want to get out of that pain. So wow, Target sells chest binders. Mm -hmm. Maybe that would be, you know, and so this, it's a sign gender dysphoric when it's really trying to cope with um, really what they're going through in their development. And, you know, and I find it just so just amazing. You know, this isn't rocket science at this time when they're going through all this emotional and cognitive and physical uh, change and, and they're trying to find their roles and their identity. Then we are we're seeing them being pressured to claim a social or like a sexual or gender profile. Um, and that even may require them to make a permanent life-altering change, which is, when you think of it, it's horrendous, that you would put that on, uh, I call it the great juxtaposition of biopsychosocial, um, you know, uh, changes, because they're, all of this is coming together at one time. And uh, I heard from a mother, and she called me and she said, you know, my daughter told me that um, she's going to come out at school as asexual just so she can have a label mm -hmm. and not be seen as a straight heterosexual female. Yeah. How old, how old was she? She was 13. What does she know? Yeah. I mean, it, what does she know? Well, I mean, right. how can she declare she's asexual if she hasn't dated or been sexually active? You know, <laughs> I, yeah. I'm sorry. Exactly. I'm stunned by. It sounds like it's more a response to what's happening externally to her than what's happening internally. I mean, there's a strong message now coming from this transgender culture that hetero, heterosexuality is oppressive. 
that there's no binary, you know, you, this idea of male and female is oppressive. It forces people into a box. And they use the term heteronormative as something that's bad, that needs to be eradicated, and that gender is on a spectrum, and that there's all these different options, you know, where biologically, that just really isn't true. In fact, the Endocrine Society came out with a statement recently that basically said there really are only two biological sexes. There is this intersex, you know, abnormality that happens rarely with human biology, where there's a confluence of the organs and, and confusion. But that is not a separate sex. And it does not, you know, argue for a spectrum of sexuality, that there really is just a male and a female. And, but that is seen as an oppressive sort of, you know, patriarchal kind of, you know, um, weapon that is used against all of these young people who want to, you know, experience their true selves or whatever. I don't know. I'm, I'm sort of ad-libbing here. But um, I have read things even in scientific articles that talk about heteronormativity as something that needs to be eradicated, starting when kids are very young in kindergarten, when they learn about sex roles and sexual identity in their home. And so you've got to get them in school when they're in kindergarten and start then to teach them that this is wrong, that this kind of a sexual identity is wrong. And this was in, again, an article, a supposedly an academic article printed in one of the American Medical Association journals. I've always found that logic very illogical. The idea that heterosexuality is not normal or that you, the male and then female and how different they are is not normal. If you can be, if gender really is fluid and you're a girl and you can recreate yourself and become or, or move along the spectrum, I'll just say that, then why would you want to transition to be a male? Because you're acknowledging that maleness is different from femaleness because you want to move away from what you are towards something else and it's not just in your head. The other thing is that if we eradicate, which will never happen, but heterosexual normativity, um, it's not sustainable because the only way you can have procreation is with a man and with a woman. Now you can argue, you know, you can blend this person and that person, you know, even if you're not married, but the bottom line is you need maleness and you need femaleness to procreate. And that's never going to change. So you know, as many words as we want to put to it and gender fluidity, when it comes down to our society thriving and moving forward, biology plays in there. Well, I was just going to say that I think that one of the main messages for parents, for example, is to be aware that your children, from the time now that they are starting in elementary school, some of these sex education programs are teaching them this transgender philosophy, that the, the gender bred man, that they can choose what gender they are and that there's not, you know, this or that, it's, it's anything goes. It's called the gender bred man. It's, it's a little diagram they use, a little cartoon of a gingerbread man and they, they write in all the different, you know, options 
And so parents need to be aware that their kids are being influenced at school and on the internet. There's a lot of messaging to kids that being male or female consistent with your biology is a bad thing. It's a, it's an oppressive thing to do. You're not one of the good guys. If you do this, if you identify with your body, you know, and, and think about that. I mean, think about how, I mean, that is a, that is a message that is out there and is getting uh, sent. And, you know, I, I'm not sure how you counteract that except to be aware of it and try to, you know, well, talk, you know, talk about confusing a child yeah, and yeah, uh, yeah. fostering self-hatred. It's a perfect way to do it. And, and self-hatred is really at the root of any kind of depression. So you have a second grade boy and he's told that maybe he isn't a boy. And if he thinks he's a boy, maybe that's wrong. I mean, that's one of the best ways to mess a kid up that I can think of. Marianne, you wanted to weigh in on this? I do. And they're, and they're doing it on a mass scale. And I, I've thought about this. I'm like, why do they want to go after younger and younger students or kids, right? Why do they want to go after those, that, that target population? But when you think about it, first of all, um, they're vulnerable in that they're really not able to weigh the merits of the argument or the information that's being presented to them. Oh, you could be a boy or you can be a girl. And they don't have all of the knowledge they need to assess whether or not that's reality. Right. But here is what I think happens. It's a seed that's planted in them so that when they do hit puberty and they're uncomfortable in their bodies, they have already been primed. And I would go as far as to say indoctrinated into, oh, well, maybe I can change. And so it really is a stage setting event what's, that's happening in our elementary schools. And parents, and then, you know, parents, of course, they're, they're told that they have to do this, that this is what is compassion and open-minded and tolerant. And, you know, I would say to parents, uh, you know, they have to resist this push that conflates compassion with a gender-affirming uh, care approach. They have to not buy that message um, that this is the, uh, this is the progressive open-minded parent um, that really, you so eloquently just said, it's planting such seeds of confusion. And I'd like to add on to that. There's just, there's an important point here. And that is that, um, you know, I just reviewed a major article that was a review of the, all the studies, you know, supposedly showing different, you know, things. And as after I reviewed the study, I found that most all of the citations that were the sources that were cited were not credible or relevant to the claims that were being made in the article. Again, this was published in an American Medical Association journal. But one of the claims they made was that um, there's evidence that you have to start teaching kids in these early grades about sexuality and uh, gender identity and sexual orientation. But the studies they cited were not studies about that at all. And so what, what it revealed was that there's no evidence supporting that position, okay? And I want to be clear to parents mm -hmm. and policymakers, there is no evidence supporting the claim that research shows you have to start teaching kids as young as kindergarten 
about these issues. There is no evidence about it one way or the other, okay? That also means while there's no evidence that it's harmful, there's no evidence that it is not harmful. And if they want to radically mm -hmm. change the way children are taught in school, the burden ought to be on those people who want to make that change to show with good evidence that they are not doing harm. You know, isn't that the medical motto, first do no harm? So they should be, they should be able to show that teaching kids about sexuality at age five and showing graphic images and, you know, all this is not harmful. They need to be able to show that before they, you know, force it on our children, because otherwise they're experimenting on our kids. And that's what's going on right now, because there is no research evidence supporting this. Or if you're, if you're giving them instruction, ideally you need to prove that it's beneficial to them, not just not harmful, but it's actually beneficial. This is where activism in the classroom um, has really replaced uh, sound educational principles. Um, they replace, you know, an agenda with what we know children need for development and thriving. And I, I want to just encourage any parents, your, the parents that listen to you, and that, wow, you know, parents are showing up, which is great. And they are, in my opinion right now, they're over the target because they are taking flack. And I think parents are actually welcoming it because they're challenging these policies that are trying to ignore um, parents, basically, and hiding what they're doing. It's very deceptive. Uh, so I think it's, you know, this the seeds of this are being planted and, and it's time to really speak up. Parents can feel confident standing up against this because there is not, mm -hmm. you know, uh, credible evidence yeah. supporting what they're doing. Yeah, exactly. You're talking about my child's mind and my child's body and, and hormones going into my child. Show me the evidence. For a couple of seconds, I know this is very hard for both of you because you review school curricula and you review uh, national standards for sex education in public schools. And there are a lot of parents that might be listening going, oh, come on, you guys. You know, you're telling me that in my kids' kindergarten and second grade class that they're talking about transgender and this kind of a thing and, and, <laughs> and sexuality. That's going on in somebody else's school. So talk about national standards, if you will, where they come from and then how they apply to schools across the country. Well, if you read some of the, the literature that informs the national uh, educations or education standards, which, by the way, are not official. They're not from the federal government. That is just a very uh, slick name. <laughs> They're not national standards at all. You know what? Now, see here. Here we go. I'm a pediatrician. I did not know that. Yeah. I thought they were truly sanctioned by the government, but they're not. So there's someone's opinion. Is that what you're yes, saying? Their opinions and and the the sections of the standards that deal with sexuality education, the experts who write those standards are the ones who are promoting transgenderism, early sexualization of children in the classroom. And I'll give you an example of curriculum. People who don't think it's it's here. Here's a it's very seductive and this is how it starts. Elementary kindergarten age. 
So they're talking about toys to a kindergartner. Is there somebody in your life who's telling you that if you're a girl, you can't play with trucks? Is there someone in your life that says if you're a boy, you can't wear pink? That's not true. You can. You can play with whatever toys you want. You can wear whatever clothes you want. And you see, and then if it's the parent, think about this. You're the kindergarten parent. And you're not actually expressly saying you, you're a girl, you can't play with a truck. But who is influencing that kindergarten? They're, they're attributing that to the parent. So now you're dividing a divisiveness between them. But it's a very seductive, um, you know, uh, curriculum built on the cognitive ability of that kindergarten to try to assess, hmm, what's this all about? Toys is the, mm-hmm. is, is the theme that's being used. That's just one example. Right. Toys and clothes. And yeah. Yeah. And this is going on statewide. But statewide in, in California, kids are being taught from, you know, as I say, kindergarten, first grade, about that not all boys have a penis. What? That's actually li- literally in one of the curricula uh, statements. And they also teach things that sexualize kids. This is one of the most common or one of the uh, popular uh, sex education curriculum that was written by somebody who's on these the advisory board of this so-called national standards, she wrote this curriculum. And this curriculum tells 12-year-old kids that it's a good idea, and you're going to not believe me on this, but I've seen it on the internet on their website, that it's a good idea to take a bath with your boyfriend or girlfriend because it's a really safe way to get acquainted. And that's in their, that's in their, their material. And so... You know, these things are happening. I need to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere. We're going to be right back with this fabulous conversation. Thanks for staying with me. Here's more of my conversation with Irene Erickson and Marianne Mozek. If you want to read the full paper that Irene wrote, which I strongly recommend you do, go to institute-research.com. I urge you also to check out Ascend at we, capital W, small e, Ascend, capital A-S-C-E-N-D dot org. Now, would you say in a given state, state of Ohio, for instance, are different public schools teaching different things or do they feel pressured to use the national education standards that are given for their state? So how, how is the decision being made as to what is taught in each school, in each district? Well, I know in Ohio, I can speak to Ohio, um, they are, you know, the decision for standards comes through the State Board of Education. And right now, the national standards, and we, I think we all know that uh, boards of education are typically very, very liberal groups. Um, and they're made up of people mm-hmm. who um, have not really, you know, uh, Maybe may agendicized. Let's put it that way. I, I mean, I'm not. I can't incriminate every single person on the board of education, but typically speaking, um, they will go with the experts in certain fields. So the math experts, the science experts, the English lit experts. 
you know, will be the ones who will come in and advise on what the standards should be. What, what do kids need to learn right now? And the same thing happens then with sex education. So there is a, they defer to the, to the experts. And as I said before, the experts oftentimes are more activists uh, than they are educational experts. Mm-hmm. Or medical people or psychologists. So they're Correct. really... Um, Mm-hmm. Well, I would just encourage us to think about our taking back the language a little bit because we talk about these national standards. Again, I would just want to call them the SICA standards because that's what they are. They were written by the people at the, uh, uh, I can't even remember what does SICA stand for. Sexuality Information and Education Council. Yeah, Sexuality Information Education Council of the U.S. It's not, they're not national standards. So I would not call them national standards. If you're going to, we could say so-called national standards. They're SICA standards. Mm-hmm. And, um, and actually it varies by state. But I think I heard recently that the CDC just came out with some recommendations that teachers should teach this stuff in the classroom. And I, did you, are you familiar with that, Marianne? I, I mean, it just like had in the last few days. I haven't, I yes. haven't uh, tracked it down. Yes. It's, they're not they're not referred to as standards it's guidance and it's disseminated from the CDC but it's disseminated through the National Education Association so the NEA you know this goes out to all the public schools and yeah. the guidance is absolutely horrific um, you would you would just shudder what you know and it's starting in kindergarten can you just give us a couple examples of you know, kindergarten, third grade. I don't know if you have them in front of you, Marianne, but... Um, um, I don't have them in front of me to read them verbatim. Okay, but, but just, um, yeah. it, You know, so so boys and girls, you know, uh, talking about uh, different positions for sex. How, how at what age? At uh, what this, age? This is, a, this is like first, second grade. By third grade, um, you know, different family makeups, it's, you know, they, they actually accompany all of these standards also with um, graphics. I know we don't have, a, you know, uh, we're not able to see these, but I could show you examples in their books of just very explicit cartoon-like characters, but that are, um, you know, completely nude, people in bed together, you know, different positions, all of this is, and this is all all being promoted. And I know people are probably listening to this, maybe driving in their car going, feeling like they're going to pull off the road, which is understandable because you just cannot imagine that this is being permitted. And I, here's what I ask. I say, who are these people? What, who are the people that are so aggressively pursuing our young children uh, to sexualize them? And I know they hate to use the word groomer, but, you know, if it fits, I, I think in many cases this fits because we are grooming them. You're setting the stage for future sexual contact and conversations, like the taking a bath together with yes. your boyfriend or girlfriend when you're 12 years old. I mean, you know, that's sexualizing kids. I'm not, I'm sorry, that's sexualizing kids. And Completely, yeah. because there are twelve-year-olds that haven't started through puberty, and and so the whole idea of sexual activity. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's just 
really irresponsible and it's happening. And I, I think that, par- I guess I would just put a, make a plea to parents because you are the ones that have the most power uh, of all of us in this. You know, I've, I've testified in California and not California, Arizona, Utah, Texas, New Jersey, Wales, the country of Wales. But mm-hmm. when parents get riled up, that's when things happen, as we see in the state of Virginia and in Texas, they they held the ground and and rejected the radical stuff that was being proposed. But parents, I would encourage parents to gather together as a group and support each other and feel confident in your the evidence base supports you doing this. The, there's not a, an evidence base for them. They will claim that there is, but I have debunked the studies they're standing on. They do not hold up, and we've got that information on our website, and I know that Ascend does as well, and I can send it to you, uh, Meg, to post on yours as well. Well, I have it, and I will post it. I will post it on my uh, website as well because it's really fabulous, and I think that that's a really good point because um, you know a lot of times parents know this is wrong. I don't want this to go through to my child they need some teeth to their argument. And what we're saying is all the medical teeth are available to you. There are solid medical reasons why kids shouldn't transition, um, that it's why it's harmful to them, why it doesn't reduce um, suicidality and how it does, you know, how too much focus is on sexuality and gender and it distorts their perception of the world and they, and they just don't focus on on anything else. We just have a couple of um, minutes here. Oh gosh, there's so much more to talk about. Um, I wanted you to talk each of you to take a little bit of time and talk, talk directly to the parent out there who has a 12 year old who came home and said, "You know, Mom, I really want it's a boy, and I really want to be a girl, and I felt this way for a long time, and I know that there are doctors who will." help me become a girl. So will you take me there? Irene, what would you say to that child? Yeah. Well, I would say that you need to wait and that we will help you wait because it's very likely that you will change your mind about this in a few years. And our job as parents is to help you not make a decision now that will change your life forever in a way that you will regret forever. And you're not in a position right now to make that decision. So we want to give you some help with some counseling and support that will help you cope with the discomfort you feel and understand, you know, maybe where it's coming from and help you to wait until you can make a really truly informed, mature decision when you're older. Because it does affect fertility, it does affect bones, it does affect your heart, and it's just profound to me. I was reading an article that we we don't really know neurodevelopmentally what these hormones yeah. do to our kids over the long term, and yet we still yeah. give them to them. Okay, Marianne, you've got a 15-year-old in the car, and it's a girl, and she <laughs> says, okay, mom, I want to be a boy my teacher says that if I feel like a boy, we've talked about a lot, that this is who I am, and you need to you need to affirm who I am and not 
force me to be something that I'm not. What would you say to that child? I would say that child's been really listening very well to the messages that they're getting. Um, and if I could just take the liberty, I'd like to talk directly to what the to the parent. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I believe that a parent really needs to trust the love that they have for their child. They have to trust the fact that at the in terms of the best interest of their child, that parent that's sitting in the car right next to them, pick them up from school, pack their lunch, washes their, their clothes, they're at the top of the pecking order for knowing that child and knowing what is best for that child. So making sure that you have communicated that trust, which you've typically done, you know, through the first 13, 15 years of their life is very important and very important also to that 15 year old that's very earnest and sincere to respect their feelings and to validate the fact that they are in pain. You know, we don't ignore that pain. Even if we know, if we think the pain is delusional or, you know, oh, you're just, you know, trying to fit in or whatever. No, it's real for whatever the cause is. And they need to know that you're respecting that. But then, as Irene said, you know, knowing, using that research as a parent, demystify the research for yourself, apply it right here. We know that the vast majority of adolescence and your child has a very, very high chance that they're going to resolve that discomfort when they go through puberty. So if you as a parent then can help them explore the reasons for that pain um, and discomfort, you know, are they self-conscious? Are their, their relationships changing? Um, are they, you know, uncomfortable with their appearance? You know, a drill down on it. Um, what are their their friends think about this? I think it's very important that you have an intentional conversation regarding this when it, when a child would come to you with this kind of things, and if it can be managed with a parent, um, you know, you know, or with professional counseling counseling, you know, to kind of unpack the root of those feelings, and then help that child to put the why on their feelings. Mm -hmm. You know, why are you feeling this? And, you know, continue to explore and encourage the reasons. And that that may begin conversations that will lead uh, to understanding and and to really sorting it out, because mm -hmm. our our students are being just deluged, I would say, assaulted with so much confusion and just lack of good information. It's astounding. And that's our role as parents. Yeah. And implied in what Marianne has said is, of course, to praise that child for for their openness and for communicating to the parent about their feelings, because that must be a very hard thing to say to a parent. Um, and then another caveat I would just add is that depending on the state you live in and the, the laws that have been passed, a counselor, a clinician, a, a psychologist will, will feel um, under pressure to support that child in their transition desires and not support you as a parent in your desire to wait, the watchful waiting. So you need to be careful mm -hmm. about how you, who you turn to for help. Maybe a pastor would be a better option or, yeah, so. I love what you said. I think it, it's a very, very hard situation and often parents feel stuck. But to affirm the child's feelings and to affirm the child's intense discomfort with what's happening, 
but to sort of say, I'm going to help you with this. I'm not telling you you don't have it. I'm not telling you that transitioning is horrible. You don't need to go there, but just say, you know, I'm in this with you. Let's sort of ride it out. Let's figure it out. But we don't need to quick jump and act um, and start taking medication no matter what anybody says. I And I would strongly encourage you to do that if, if any parents are listening. Their final thought, I mean, you have five major points that you concluded in your research and in, in looking at all of the studies. Would you mind just stating those five before we go? And again, I'm going to post your paper on my website. Yeah, that would be great. I can do that. Yeah, I, I'm glad. So what we found is these are the five things we want parents and policymakers to know that research evidence does not support medical intervention for gender-confused minors or children. Medical transition procedures, number two, have not been shown to reduce teen suicide. Number three, childhood gender dysphoria usually dissipates on its own by adulthood. Number four, the dramatic increase in gender dysphoria in the past decade is likely being driven by social influence, okay? And number five, Sex education for early elementary school children, including content about transgender ideology, has not been shown by scientific research to be beneficial. And I think you can stand on those five things and feel supported knowing that you're informed about how to proceed. And that comes from a real researcher, <laughs> because I know that you, Irene, are so meticulous and thorough, and you've gone through all of the research, you're not just talking about your own paper that was sponsored by a drug company um, who's making progesterone. You, you as an unbiased person said, I'm going to read everything there is out there and I'm going to tease it apart and I'm going to figure out what it is. Yeah. I haven't read every study, but I've read the key studies that are used, that are claimed as evidence. And I've read reviews, key reviews by credible reviewers of all of this. And I feel very confident in those five things. Marianne, final thoughts, final words. You know, I would just, um, I would just say, parents, uh, reiterating what Irene said, you are standing on solid ground. Just, you know, we want to make sure that even today that we've helped to demystify some of the research, so that you can apply it in a practical way. You know, in your lived experience um, with your child. And you know your child and don't like, let anyone, state especially, take away uh, your rights to love your child the best way you can. And to fight for them and don't be intimidated. I think there's that intimidation factor there too. Well, medical science says because they've got major children's hospitals in the country doing this to children and truthfully, it's embarrassing to my profession. It really is. Well, I thank you both for coming. This has been wonderful, wonderful. Irene, I really want your paper in the hands of everybody listening out there. So I'm going to have it on my website, but how can people find out more about you, um, read what you're doing? How can people contact you or find out about you? Well, we do have a website, institute-research.com. You know, I'm available at my email address, which is iericsson, spelled out, dot I-R-E, for Institute for Research and Evaluation, at gmail.com. So iericsson, E-R-I-C-K-S-E-N, dot I-R-E, at 
uh, gmail.com. And we'll have that as well. Marianne, you're with a fabulous organization called Ascend. How can people learn about Ascend, contact you, see what you're up to? Well, our website is available at weascend.org. And once you go through there, you'll be on a whirlwind tour of all the things that we offer, um, not only to parents, um, but to those who are providing sex education. So you can contact us through the website, my personal uh, email, mmmosak, M-O-S-A-C-K, at weascend.org. And love to hear from you. We're, we're certainly for parents, uh, 100% and want to be there, want to have their backs, and we do. We try to have their backs every single day. So at least in the three of us, parents can know we're here to help you in any way we can and to give you solid arguments and arm you with really the best research and what's right and help you wade through all of this confusion out there. Irene and Marianne, thank you so much for joining me today. I have personally loved this interview and I know that our listeners are going to be as well because this is a critically important topic. So thanks for joining me. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Great to be with you, both of you. Well, here are my points to ponder. One, if your child is struggling, help him work through the struggle before doing anything else. You know, we're so anxious to relieve kids of their suffering that we look for an answer and grab onto it. I've done this. Be extremely careful. Sometimes in our anxiety to help, we lead them to, quote, answers that aren't the correct ones. Transitioning kids is a major life-altering decision, and before a parent considers it, they must be 100% confident that the root of the struggle is gender dysphoria. Even if it is, parents should wait until the child is older to transition. Give the child time to work through his emotional struggle before assuming that it's the gender dysphoria issue and not something else that's bothering him. Two, Kids don't have full brain development until they're in their 20s. To engage in a life-altering treatment because the child claims they have gender dysphoria is unreasonable. A child's unable to make such a decision because they lack the ability to understand that an action done today will affect them in one month or one year, let alone a lifetime. We don't allow kids to drive just because they feel anxious to do so when they're 13, or allow them to drink alcohol because they have a deep desire to do so, these would be outrageous. Three, understand all of the medical, psychological, and emotional ramifications before even considering transitioning your child. Since the medical process of transitioning kids is relatively new, there's been less than adequate research until now. The research coming out is compelling and every parent must know it before moving forward at all. Having a child wait until they're adults is the best plan because there's a lot we still don't know about the full effects of the medications. Again, I wanna offer my sincere thanks to colleagues Irene Erickson and Marianne Mozek. When it comes to transition issues, these ladies are as well informed as one can get. Be sure to check out Irene's excellent research paper, Transgender Research, Five Things 
every parent and policymaker should know. And check out Marianne Mozak's organization at weascend.org. Now let's review my points to ponder. One, if your child is struggling, help him with a struggle before doing anything else. Two, kids don't have full brain development until they're in their 20s. And three, understand all of the medical, psychological, and emotional ramifications before even considering transitioning your child. You know, friends, parenting is tough, and the challenges our kids face are enormous, and sometimes they can feel overwhelming to us parents, but never get discouraged. Yeah, the challenges are great, but the influence of good parents like you can overcome any of these challenges. That's why every one of us needs help. And always remember, friends, that great kids are raised, not born. 